welcome to episode 185 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony, and we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. I have to ask, is this also the podcast of Brotherly Love? It is. It still is the <laughs> podcast of Brotherly Love. Excellent. We this still retain the all rights reserved to that uh, tagline. But yes. yes, you are correct. It still is the podcast of Brotherly Love. Great. And also, we are still your podcasting brothers from another mother. <laughs> Also and great. the podcast was born for adversity. Adversity. This yep. is the podcast with so many taglines. We don't know what to do with ourselves. It's true. It's funny because, you know, I, I had that rhythm of like, we are proud members. I had it down pat where it fit exactly in the bumper music. And now I've noticed as I've been editing it, like I'm just a little bit behind. So I'm trying to like figure out how to get that rhythm again. That's okay. I feel like that's describes all of my life right now. Just a it's little true, just bit. Just a little bit behind. <laughs> just a little bit behind. So yeah. speaking of getting ahead then, let's get into some affirmations and denials. I'm so curious, as always, what do you have this week? You want to start denial or you want to start affirmation? Let's start with affirmations. Okay. Because let's just do it that way. So <laughs> I'm affirming... Okay, this is going to be a little bit weird, and this is a strange topic for this podcast. I love it. I'm affirming grooming. Like, okay, we've all been working from home for a while now, and I can tell you that some of my coworkers, and I will count myself in this, like, just stopped <laughs> trying about three weeks ago. And I've had some changes at work, and I've had to start going back into the office a little bit more frequently than I, I had been. And so on, uh, what was it, Tuesday maybe? I don't know when it was. Like, I took the extra time to, like, really, like, shave and, like, make sure my beard was on point. I, like, I, like wore a shirt and tie. Like, I got all dressed up for work. And I cannot tell you how much of a difference it made in terms of, like, the way that I felt and the way I approached my day. It just really was a different experience. So I'm affirming grooming and I'm affirming even with this like stay at home thing. If you're working from home and like all you're doing is like making your top half presentables because you're on a Zoom meeting all day, <laughs> like just take one day and like really go go out. It will make all the difference in the world. Like you'll feel like a totally different person. Oh, uh, that's great. I love this because it's a direct call out and everybody knows what you're talking about. And I love that you phrased mm -hmm. it with as if you're just making your top half presentable. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> if you're doing the John Krasinski thing where you are wearing a, like a shirt, like a, a tank, a tank top, a tank. like a, like a dress shirt, like a blazer. And then you stand up and you're in your boxers. Yeah. It's funny when John Krasinski does it. It's not okay though. No, that's... I actually, I actually took an interview. I interviewed somebody, a candidate that, that we ended up hiring. I wore a dress shirt and pajama pants because I didn't feel like getting dressed. And then I was like, all right, it's time. I need, <laughs> I need to do something with my life. That's pretty impressive. This does resonate with me, or maybe a better way to say it is I'm sensing some twinge of conviction. I'm not sure if that's the Holy Spirit or I'm hearing now my wife's voice in my own head. But just this morning, we were on a, a Zoom call for worship. And as my wife was watching us both sit there on the camera, on the screen, she kept covering her mouth so nobody could see what she was saying and saying to me, look at how big and obnoxious your beard is right now. Look at it in the screen. <laughs> look at it. Look at how awful it looks. And I was like, that is glorious what you're seeing there. So we had this whole like covering our mouths conversation in you know, this discreet way about this, but I understand what you're saying because, the, and I don't know how lazy I've grown now, but there's some days I wake up because I am mostly working from home. And I think, D I, I don't even really want to shave this morning. I have almost nothing to shave on my face. Like it's just like the, yeah. the couple of patches, like trimming up my beard. 
you could shave with like a like a cotton swab. Yeah, it's like that kind of hair. It's like whoop, 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 yep. whoop, all done. Exactly. And even that I'm so lazy where I'm like, oh, it just seems like so much work. Like it, it's incredible. So, yeah, uh, it, it is funny how doing the little discipline things. I don't want to like over spiritualize this, but doing the little discipline things do make such a big difference in your life. Not just how you feel, but I think basically like your countenance, how you present yourself, like all those things. So the, it's the little disciplines that matter. Yeah. Yeah. What is it? Dress for the job you want, not for the job you have. Yeah, I guess so. Something like that. I mean, at this point I did tell my wife, I'm not, I am not trimming my beard until this is all done. So it's, <laughs> <laughs> it's got to end before this thing gets shorter. That's it's, it's going to be it like, to be. it's going to be like 2023 and Jesse's going to have like the full length Gandalf wizard beard. And they'll be like, what happened to you, Jesse? And he's like, we never went back to work. We That's never, right. we never, the governor just kept on saying, don't leave your house. And we were like, all right, That's whatever. Right. And at some point it will become like self-reinforcing. It'll become a massive feedback loop because probably mm -hmm. I won't be allowed back in the office because the beard is so long, which will allow me to keep growing the beard. So true. I, I do plan on elevating it and mainly for my own enjoyment. If at some point it gets long enough and we haven't yet kind of returned to some full normalcy, I'm going to have to start braiding it. It's just going to happen. I would love that. I would love that. I think <laughs> if that happens, we are definitely going to have to redo our logo to match. Yes. Uh, I, I, you know, I've, I've gone for long stretches of time, uh, not shaving, like completely not shaving. My beard does not grow as long as yours. I'm not sure exactly what the mechanics are behind that, but it just doesn't, just like it doesn't, it, time. it doesn't grow. No, no. Like I went three or four years one time without shaving at all. And it, it just sort what? of stops. I, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe I need to use like beard oil. I don't know. It just <laughs> stops. So I can't, I can't get there. But uh, it's no, all good. this is like all natural, man. This is pure laziness. It'll just my keep er, growing. My beard also grows in at different rates on different sides of my face. <laughs> so if I don't keep it trim, like one side of my beard gets longer than the other. And I look like that episode where Kramer only shaved half his face. It's like that. Yes. Yeah. Well, that's happening here. It's not totally symmetric, but it's I'm just getting away with it because it's it gets to the point where it's just so bushy and out of control that really you're just distracted by that. And so you're not really even noticing the asymmetry. It's true. What about you? What are you affirming? Well, I'm going back to, we, again, I think we've determined in terms of like the genus sort of species of our recommendations or affirmations, there's only like four or five. So I'm relying on that again, and I'm going back to a music affirmation. And this week, uh, you'll be happy to know it is not screaming music. So this is like music for oh. everybody. Like I feel so excited to affirm this. And this is from a band called Citizens. And what I love is that on April 9th, they released an album and it's called The Joy of Being Phone Demos. And what they actually did was they recorded several songs just using an iPhone and it's just guitar, piano and vocal. And their whole point in doing this was they wanted to produce music without overproduction so that it they were, the lyrics were forefront. Citizens has made amazing albums. Everybody's listened to them before. They've done a lot of traditional hymns and kind of new and different ways. They've also written a lot of their own music, but it's all very, very theologically deep. So I've been listening to this album as I've been working from home and growing my beard, and it is absolutely fantastic. So please go out and look at the joy of being phone demos because these guys in particular are so committed to writing music that is not just like lyrically beautiful and melodic, but is really enlightening and encouraging to the soul. It's such good theology. So you will not be disappointed if you go check out the joy of being the phone demos. And of course, the, the fact they record it for kind of like a quarantine environment on their phones, it's mixed. So it sounds beautiful. 
it's just amazing. So it's a really unique experience and a unique um, project. So I'm hoping that people go out and listen to it, especially if they've never listened to Citizens before. Are you yeah. familiar with their work at all? I am not. I, I listen to like no music at all. Like it is. <laughs> How it's do you do not that? A, it's not uncommon for me to go like multiple weeks with the only music that I hear is like the songs that we sing during like the worship service. Well, there's nothing wrong with that. I just, it just, I just don't listen to music. You know, I was, I was actually talking to Ashley about that the other day. I mean, she still very much listens to music, but even her, the amount of music she's listening to is, is reduced. And I, I'm not sure. Like I, for me, it just got to a point where I was like, I don't know. I can either spend this half an hour on the way to work, listening to music, or I can listen to a podcast. And I was like, I'm going to listen to a podcast. So what is it? They say the older you get, the more likely you are to listen to talk radio. Is that true? Is that a thing? I think so. It sounds like it. It like feels a like it. Survey or like a quantitative study. I think it's just one. Of, it's like first principles. <laughs> it's one of those things oh. that you don't. You just. You can't. You can't appeal to anything higher. It's a self-authenticating authority. Oh, great. Well, that's good. Well, then, in that case, it's definitely time for some denials. That's Let's true. get negative. What, what do you got? Well, speaking of self-authenticating authorities that you're not going to confirm, <laughs> I'm denying confirmation bias. Oh, so okay. I that was like an amazing segue. I didn't even intend it. It was um, beautiful. So confirmation bias is that phenomena that happens and everybody is susceptible to it. You are, I am, everybody is. Um, and I know that everybody is because I already think that everybody is. Um, (laughs) it's the phenomena where you tend to select evidence or interpret evidence in a way that confirms what you already believed. So if, uh, the, the perfect example is that a person who was raised a Roman Catholic can go to the scripture and read the scripture and still feel like they're reading a Roman Catholic docu- document, right. and a person who was raised Protestant goes to the scriptures and reads the scriptures and feels like they're reading a Protestant document. It's the same reason that an Arminian can read uh, Romans 9 and feel like it's teaching Arminianism, and a Calvinist can read it and feel like it's teaching Calvinism. And so where, where I'm seeing this the most prominently is, and I'm sure you've seen it too, although you're not on the internet, you're not on um, social media as much as I am. Um, is in all the discussion around all the different scientific evidences and data revolving around coronavirus. Uh, so for sure. people, people often look at what's going on in the news. They look at the different science, the different data that's out there, and they believe that it confirms their position. Um, a really stunning, stark example of this is the CDC recently uh, released what they call provisional deaths uh, related to coronavirus. And uh, what a provision, what the provisional death is versus the case fatality rate or something like that. Provisional death actually has to do with the actual reported death cause of death listed on death certificates. And so even right at the top of the CDC's page, it talks about how this data typically lags four to six weeks behind the actual like real time. And so this snapshot of the amount of deaths um, attributed to coronavirus or to COVID is from, you know, like the beginning of April or or the end of March. So still very early on, even though there's now some dispute about how early coronavirus was present in the United States, still very early on in the spread of this disease. But a lot of people are looking at it and they're going, see, it only says 34,000 deaths. This wasn't nearly as bad as everybody thought it was going to be. Open back up. Everybody go back to work. You know, open up the churches, open up the grocery stores. Let's all go see the Avengers, whatever it is. Um, not even recognizing that this data only tells you how many people died of coronavirus as of four to six weeks ago. Um, Well, we've had four to six weeks of increasing death rate. It's not unlikely that there's been another 30 or 40,000, which is 
incidentally, exactly what the CDC has reported in terms of the case fatality rate. So, so that's one example. The other example is, you know, this big report just came out out of what's called the Northeastern model, which is Northeastern University has this model for coronavirus. And they've now reported that uh, they believe that a certain number of people were infected in major cities that we didn't even we didn't even know about. So people are looking at this and they're saying, see all of this stuff that that the, you know, um, the International College London or the ICL report, whatever it's all that was wrong. What they don't realize because of confirmation bias, because they're not even looking at the data, they're not actually taking time to read it and understand what it is. This model is the ICL model, the Northeastern model was integrated into the ICL model. And so the way that all models work, and you know this from economic modeling, the way that all models work, whether it's economics or weather or you know this or that or the other thing or disease, is there's a model. And as new data comes out, they input that data into the model and it changes the projections. Right. So that's what's happened is they came up with new data. They inserted that data into the same model and they updated the projections. So the, the confirmation bias element comes in here is that they're willing to look at this model, which is the same exact model, and say this model proves that model wrong, not recognizing that's the same model. Um, you know, other ways I've seen it is people who normally would absolutely think the UN is not a reliable source are pasting all over the place that the UN has projected that hunger deaths in the world are gonna increase in the billions. Um, People who are wanting to say there's no way the government can accurately tell us how many people have died from coronavirus are also posting the CDC data related to flu deaths every year. Right. So they're using the same same source and in one situation saying this source is unreliable and in another situation saying it is reliable, not because of any sort of analysis of the data to show why they're reliable in this case, but simply because one set of data fits their preconceived model and the other set does not. So it's really important, you know, th this is a theology podcast, even though we're a top 50 healthcare podcast. <laughs> um, it's really important as we look at theological data uh, to not allow as much as we can, like we're never going to eliminate confirmation bias, right. but to not allow confirmation bias to color our understanding of what the scripture says. Um, it's not confirmation bias to say I've tested this particular interpretation or this body of interpretation in the confessions against the scriptures and found it to be reliable. And so therefore I'm going to assume it's reliable based on my previous testing of it. That's not necessarily confirmation bias, uh, but to just say like, this is what I think scripture says. And so any, any data that tells me something else, any position or any, any argument that comes to a different conclusion is automatically false. That's not how theology is to be done. So right. I'm denying confirmation bias in general, but especially in terms of theological confirmation bias. That is a really good word right there. I think maybe part of the victory in combating confirmation bias is just to acknowledge that it does exist, that we all have it. And so we yeah. ought to be aware of it. And I think that can help color and change our approach to everything, including and especially the scriptures. I mean, it strikes me that the internet is like a cesspool of cognitive biases of all kinds, yeah. but that's just because like people have them, but the, the internet tends to draw them out. And so hopefully become yeah. more aware of those because anybody who's ever said, well, no debate online is particularly helpful because all it does is further entrench people. That is in fact, an example of the cognitive bias you're speaking of. Yeah. So it's good to be aware of that. Like, don't be that dude. Don't be that person that is is so entrenched that you're not willing at least to listen and yeah. to process and to understand and to hear. So I, I kind of like that because that's really good in like all areas of life. Like we'd be a lot more humble people if we understood that even as we approach theology that we're certainly not perfect. 
but that we're trying as best we can to process and filter the data in such a way that we're as objective as physically possible or as mentally possible or as emotionally, intellectually possible as, as we can be. And that, I think if we came from that kind of position stance, we'd all have like better, more productive conversations for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, one other way that confirmation bias um, takes root, and it's especially, I think, prominent in theological circles, uh, but this propensity is demonstrating itself in the COVID discussions too, is this tendency to assume that whatever expertise we may have, or we think we have, that it translates into another area of expertise. Sure. Right. So I, I speak relatively, uh, I think I'm relatively well-spoken on issues surrounding COVID, primarily because my work as a medical administrator requires me to be conversant with this stuff. I'm in, in, in uh, I'm exposed. That's a weird pun to use in this case. I'm exposed to discussions about COVID at an academic medical level that I otherwise wouldn't be. So I have some insight into that, but it's funny you'll get a kick out of this because somebody that I was talking to the other day, I was telling about how I was having a really tough time finding toilet paper. Like we're, we're getting to that point where we're almost out of toilet paper and I, I really haven't been able to find a good place that I can get like a stock of it. Like there's places you can go where you can buy one roll at a time, but like we go through a roll every couple of days and I can't go to the grocery store every couple of days. And I said to them, I said, you know, I'm really having a tough time um, it's like, there's no supply. And they looked at me and they said, Oh, it's not a supply issue. It's a demand issue. <laughs> and, and I, I said to him, I said, like a supply issue isn't a supply issue unless it's a demand issue. Like that you just said this, that's like a, like a tot, like a tautology, a supply issue is a demand issue Sure. because if there was no demand, then there'd be no supply issue. And if there right. was no supply issue, then there'd be no demand issue. If, if there's no issue on either part, then, then everything's working right. So it's just funny because they were, they were, they parroted something they read online and they were trying to articulate their pre their you know presupposition that yeah the 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 supply is there it's just too many people want it right and in doing so they proved like well you don't really understand what you're saying and you uh, you clearly are not like the shelves are empty and there are people who are are fighting over the last roll like that's a supply issue because there's no supply and a demand issue because there's too much demand for the supply. So I'm just denying cognitive and, you know, and, and confirmation bias across the board. I love it. We, I never know where our conversations are going to go. <laughs> yeah. So what are, what are you denying? This is so great. Well, it's about to get even more random and perhaps even more nerdy if that's possible, because you just spoke at length about modeling, which I yeah. love. And I'm sure that hopefully most of our listeners are like, have rapt attention with what we're talking about, but something I would say fairly significant happened in my life this week. And that is, I'd always had an interest. Here's where it gets nerdy. You're going to love this right away. I'd always had an interest in star Wars. And I realized that there was this large gap in my life because I have seen the original ones four episodes, four, five, and six. I actually have never seen any of the prequels. So my wife and I embarked on this journey where we're going to start to watch them all in a kind of a serial fashion, either like as time allowed or in between things. And so just this week, I got my first glimpse of the prequels because I watched all of one in a serial fashion. And then I'm, I'm partway through episode two. And I wouldn't necessarily say that I'm like a good movie critic. Like I don't always have appreciation for all the nuance. But and, and I know that there's like a lot of vitriol for the prequels. And I was trying to go into it with like a 
I'm just going to like, maybe it's not as bad. People love Star Wars and I'm growing in my appreciation of it. I really do enjoy it. And the storyline, I think is brilliant and beautiful in its own way. And of course it's emblematic and a shadow of the story of Christ as all good stories are. And so I was like, I'm going to chalk this up to maybe people are too intensely connected to this and they can't separate themselves. And then I met Jar Jar Binks and basically <laughs> <laughs> I was like, George Lucas lost his mind. What yes. happened? So I really am denying against the prequels because it's, it's almost like I was telling my wife, it's almost like George Lucas in this alternate reality, like died. And somebody was like, well, I'm going to pick up the story, but I'm going to try to do it in my own unique way and created like a lesser version of Star Wars that you watch and you're like, yeah, that's just not as good as like the original concepts at all. So I'm actually blown away by how bad they truly are. And this is somebody who, again, was, I was really trying to be super objective. Like I had no, I had no expectations for this. I really set the bar super low. Just like, I want to just go and see an enjoyable movie. But even I'm like, how does this plot make sense? Like what C3PO was built by Anakin Skywalker that honestly, for some reason I texted you that like that disturbs me to my core and I have no idea why. Yeah. Yeah. I have this theory about this. Of course. So <laughs> that's why every, every, so every Star Wars movie or really trilogies are are written into a particular era, right? So, you know, you have like the Star Wars the original Star Wars trilogy and it's kind of that uh late seventies vibe, right? They came out in the early eighties, but it has kind of that late seventies vibe. So yes, like I agree. the style, like the, their clothing style reflects, yes. you know, like Le- Princess Leah basically dresses like a hippie or like she's got all these flowing loose garments and these weird hairdos and um and she's on pot for the entire movie. But um <laughs> And then and then you get the prequel trilogy, which came out in the mid to late 90s. Right. Right. And this. So this was one of the things that people really hated about the the most recent trilogy is the humor. Right. The, the sort of like weird, awkward, sarcastic humor. Like you think Poe Dameron and there's like that first scene where he's he's facing up against Kylo Ren and Kylo Ren is like this big menacing bad guy. And he's like, so do I talk first? Like, how does this yes, work? Like, right. Very right. classic. Like you lo- it feels like you're watching The Office. Well, the, I think part of the reason it's so jarring for you right now watching the prequel trilogy is you're used to 2020s humor style and like tropes that work in 2020. Sure. Versus humor and tropes that work in the, the mid to late 90s. Honestly, at the time, I saw episode one when I was in, I want to say see, I was at North Camp. So I must have been in 10th grade or earlier. I was still in 10th grade or younger. So what is that, like 15 years old? Yeah. I thought Jar Jar Binks was freaking hilarious. I thought really? he was so funny. But think about it. Like, he's the digital embodiment of like Chris Farley's type yeah, humor. Slapstick. Like, he talks dumb. He does stupid things. He walks into walls. He electrocutes right. himself. There's this sort of like mild twinge of racism, like, yes. like racist humor. <laughs> yes. Like, all that played really well in the 90s. Like, I feel like we just converted ourselves over to the Nerd Gospel podcast. We uh, rest in peace for the podcast. Yeah, um, we definitely did. Like, so I, I think at the time it probably wasn't so bad. What I find the most jarring about the prequel trilogies is like, okay, the first one, it's the hero's tale. It's this epic development yes, story. Right. Basically it's Dungeons and Dragons in space, right? It's this random farm boy. He realizes he's a wizard and also a little bit of a knight. He finds like it's typical hero story. 
Uh, and then episode one, two, and three is like trade negotiations and politics and yes. Senate meetings. Yes. So it's like a totally different. But even that, think about what's happening in the late 90s. Like it was a lot of politics. It was Bill Clinton. It was, I mean, it was all this stuff going on that was political in nature. It was just a different world. So, yeah, I, I, I hate the prequel trilogies. I told you, like, <laughs> if you just, like, go all the way to the, like, you just go to the first part where they run into Darth Maul and then, like, fast forward again until the second part where they watch right. they get to Darth Maul and then just, like, start episode two, like, halfway through and then watch through episode three. That's the way to watch the prequel trilogies. Just watch all the, all the lightsaber fights and then yes. episode three. Um but yeah, you're you're totally there. Like I, the 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 first trilogy is painful to watch. It's really I, bad. I wanted to like them. I really did in the sense that like I wanted to prove everybody wrong and and show like the redeeming parts. And it's not like there aren't parts that are great. Like you said, at the end of episode one, the lightsaber duel is amazing. My only yeah. disappointment is like there's all this build up. Even the score is like amazing. It's a different John Williams approach. It's beautiful. Mm-hmm. It's choral. There's got all that those pieces of like uh, building to the zenith. But then like Darth Maul is like, can we spoil this? Like, is yeah, this, go ahead. It was okay. like 20 years ago. Okay, I just want to make sure. I have no idea. It's fine. Like, he gets cut in half so quickly. And that scene is cool. But I was like, okay, so Qui-Gon dies like so quickly and kind of abruptly. Like, he basically yeah. gets pushed back and then run through. And you're kind of like, oh, that was the part? Like, that's the critical element right there? Well, and, so here, here's the thing, though. <laughs> Up until that point in the Star Wars <laughs> world, so right? Great. The entire Star Wars universe, the entire, the entire cinematic Star Wars world. Yeah. We had never before seen a true Jedi lose a fight that they didn't, they didn't lose on purpose. Yes. Like right. We'd never seen them be overcome. Right. So you got to remember, like as someone who, who was following star Wars and loves star Wars, that was like the first time that, that was like a huge shock to the system. Right. Like you're thinking like, Oh my gosh, this is the new era of the Jedi. Right. Qui-Gon Jinn is amazing. He's, you know, he's going to, he's going to be the new big, you know, the big superhero. And, the, and then he's dead. And then you're like, oh my gosh, these Sith are so powerful. Like, how were we ever? Oh, he's dead. Like, it totally reestablished. It, that that was actually something really brilliant in the movies. It totally reestablished the Jedi as like not this invincible superhero army. Sure, like even right. even Darth Vader. Like right. Darth yes. Vader doesn't get beat at the end of the movie. Like he right. voluntarily sacrifices himself. Right. So that that was yeah, that was pretty intense. But that, I, I cried a little bit when Qui Gon died. To be honest with well, you. Well, no, no, no. It is well. So that's kind of my point. Actually, is is what I'm saying is I felt like there could have been more emphasis in the movie, like more emotionality in that moment. There was a little yeah. bit, but it moved on quickly. Then, like the scene moved away. And yeah. to kind of build all that up and show that it was a big deal that Qui-Gon died. Like we're so, su- yeah. I think we're supposed to like it, kind of push ourselves into that moment and lean into the suffering and what happens there, especially from Obi-Wan's perspective. But I felt like there was just kind of a latent opportunity there. So I've, I've yeah. been enjoying it. it there, there's certainly parts of it that are, are super funny and interesting. I, I will say like, I was a little bit disappointed because I felt like what Lucas had done is made the world smaller by, by forcing in all of the same characters so yeah. like the whole thing with C-3PO like being built by Anakin, I, I was just kind of like, oh, that's weird. Like, so here's the thing, like, and, and I, I mean, I don't know anything else because I'm only halfway through the second episode. And by the way, I think we're supposed to feel this way, but Anakin Skywalker is super annoying. And the, the whole, like all the love scenes that he's in are so painful. So like, even yeah. aside from like the context of the actual like at epoch in which they were like created. I feel like the acting is maybe not as good as it was in other places, but it's so painful. Yeah, I have a theory about that too. 
I actually think that Hayden Christensen delivered a brilliant, absolutely brilliant performance what? as Anakin really? Skywalker. How is this so possible? I was convinced of this by a video I saw on YouTube. I'll try to dig up the link if I can remember what it was called, exactly what it was called. Okay. But Anakin Skywalker was was raised basically as a slave with no and th- he went from being a slave with no friends and no real human interaction except his mommy agreed to being a monk right right with with like you went from have all the feelings have only the feelings be an impulsive little boy right to have no feelings whatsoever and then all of a sudden it's like those two worlds the have all the feelings and have no feelings they all of a sudden collide when this figure who was present and really changed his life at that transition moment comes back into his life with Amidala. And so he's kind of like this, he's this like post-traumatic stress kid who doesn't, he doesn't like know how to interact realistically in any situation. Right. I got, I got that. It's weird. Right. So, so his character is supposed to be this weird emotionless, like, like strange character. And he played it perfectly. And then you get to like the last one and like now all of a sudden his character is developing a little bit. The one thing that I think and then we should actually like talk about theology. The one <laughs> is that thing not what we're doing. <laughs> the one thing that they they should have done. I'm not usually one to say like they should have done this in the movie. Yeah. Either I like what they did or they didn't, but what I think they should have done is the brilliance of the Darth Maul fight and Darth Maul doesn't actually die in that spoiler alert, but he, he, he comes back to life later with, with robot spider legs in the Clone Wars series. Anyways, the brilliant thing about that is that the way that the way that Obi-Wan actually overcomes Darth Maul is basically by falling to the dark side temporarily, right? He lets his rage take over. Yes. And that's a theme throughout the whole thing, right? Right up until the end, not to spoil yours, but like right up until the end of episode three, where it's clear that like the way that Anakin is going to get the power he needs to do what he wants to do is to let go and to let his rage and his anchor take over, which he does throughout the series at least little spots. But they never, ever, ever go back to that with Obi-Wan. Like there's never a hint anywhere that he's wrestled with this. Right. So like if they had, if they had like weaved that throughout the series and like had points where Obi-Wan was talking about, I understand you're frustrated, Anakin. I understand that you know that this could give you power, but don't go there. And then showing the contrast between Obi-Wan who took that power, did what he needed to, but then realized the error of his ways and never went back. And Anakin who falls that contrast between those two characters at the end of episode three would have been that much more powerful. And they just missed the boat on it. Yeah. And that, that to me is like, man, they could have, it could have been so brilliant. And of course, like it's easy to see that going in reverse and like all that, blah, blah, blah. Like knowing what happens in episode three and the climactic battle and all that stuff. Yes. 2020 hindsight, but yeah, they, they missed the boat on it, but yeah, episode two is better than episode one, and episode three is better than episode two, but they're all, they're all pretty terrible. That's what I've heard. Episode three is pretty good, but episode yeah. one and two are bad. Uh, well, thanks for letting me know that Darth Maul is not actually dead. Yeah, well, you know, it's 20 <laughs> years later, so I think it's okay. That's, that's fair enough. Yeah, so I'm kind of denying uh, the sequels, but only because I'm just wading into them. But I, I'm with you. Like, it's, it's complicated. It's beautiful. I, what you're saying resonates with me because... At the end of episode one, after Qui-Gon dies and Obi-Wan is like let into the the space where he can like fight Darth Maul, you can, yeah. there's a, they do a really good job at emphasizing there's a dramatic change right. in the way that he's encountering His fighting him. style is different. Yes. His abilities are different. Yes. And that, that is like, that's, well that's a hallmark of in, in Star Wars, 
that's a hallmark is different fighting styles with lightsabers right. are associated with the light side versus the, the dark side. And the fighting style that he uses in that episode or in that seer in that fight is a very typical dark side fighting style. And they, they foreshadow the same thing. Like if you think of episode uh, seven, eight and nine, um, the, the new trilogy, the fighting style that this is major spoilers. If you haven't seen this is actual spoilers. If you haven't seen episode seven, eight, nine, and you don't want to hear about it, then fast forward about two minutes. The fighting style that Ray uses in the forest in episode uh, seven is Palpatine's fighting style. Like it's it's choreographed exactly the same as what we see when Palpatine fights in episode three. And so then that that fast forwards and foreshadows the fact, although they weren't doing it at the time, it's kind of weird how those ones came out. She's Palpatine's granddaughter. So like that whole thing is foreshadowed. If you know what you're looking for and you, you key in on it, you can see that Obi-Wan temporarily uses the power of the dark side to overcome Darth Maul. And that's a huge plot point that gets missed and they did nothing with it. It was a total whiff. Right. Right. All yeah, right. that's beautiful right there. Yeah, I'm enjoying it. So I know that some people are already well versed in this stuff, but for whatever reason, I never saw the first three. And I think it was partly because people said like, oh, don't even bother. And so now that I'm like, well, we got this a little bit of time and it's so easily accessible via Disney Plus, we're watching them through and it has been super interesting. I'm learning yeah. a lot. I've also read some of, some of the books. So like I, that was like a precursor to these three. So now like I love or I have a great appreciation for like Qui-Gon and like even Dooku and all those guys. So I, I'm just learning so much. It's it is super fun, even though I am denying against them. Yeah, Jar Jar Binks ends up as like a like a poverty stricken street performer after all like after the Empire takes over. <laughs> He's got this they got this like throwaway line in one of the books, uh in one of the Aftermath trilogy books where like He's like this pitied creature on the streets of Coruscant. Like he's a street performer. That's funny. And like, that's all, that's what happens to him is he like just fades into obscurity, which is like totally satisfying. Like that I is would, satisfying. the only thing that would have been more satisfying is like if they had like a gruesome death described for him and he just like, <laughs> he was like cut into a hundred pieces slowly by a lightsaber or something like that. And, and sent into all the galaxy. Like sent yes, to everywhere. his body was torn for the 12 tribes. Yes. That's exactly what it see. This is always in an every way theological. I will say one of the joys of watching this though, is like, you can see how they're implanting all these like little wonderful, funny sayings. Like for instance, in episode two, in the beginning, right before Obi-Wan and Anakin enter into this club and they're trying to seek the assassin, Obi-Wan's just expressing that Anakin can be an often difficult Padawan. So he says, uh, I have a feeling you're going to be the death of me. And I was like, oh, yeah. I see what you did there. Clever. Yeah, Disney. there's a lot of that. Clever. There's a lot of, uh, well, it wasn't Disney at the time, but yeah, there's a that's lot true. of, um, yeah, that's true. there's a lot of that. It, it's always interesting. And then we really should talk about theology. <laughs> Um, yeah, we're going to go on. <laughs> we are. It's always really interesting to think about. Like, it's not really for that stuff's not really foreshadowing because no, the, right, like right. it is in the if you watch the series from, you know, from one to nine, there's a lot of that stuff that's not really foreshadowing, even though it is foreshadowing. Yeah, right. Like exactly. that, like you're going to be the death of me. Like, well, yeah, of course. Like, um, you know, there's all this there's all this stuff like when when. Padme and uh, Anakin introduce like meet each other for the first time. Like it's really clear they're gonna like that's gonna be Luke yes. and Leia's parents. There's no reason to think that in the first episode unless you already know that. So it, it's it's kind of like if this wasn't actually foreshadowing, like if, if they came out in in numerical order, it would have been absolutely brilliant. Like like it's kind of like the lightsaber 
uh, thing I just mentioned with Ray. They didn't know that Ray was going to be Palpatine's granddaughter when they made episode one. So they probably were trying to hint at the fact that she was struggling with the dark side by using this dark side fighting style that was matching Palpatine's. But then like all of a sudden when they were trying to figure out what to do with episode nine, because episode eight was such a stinker, they had to like regroup and like try to erase most of episode nine, uh, set, uh, eight. Uh, it was like, well, we can make her Palpatine's granddaughter. And like, it's all the foreshadowing is there, even though it wasn't really yes, foreshadowing. Right, so they right. like retroactively applied right, the foreshadowing. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's right, a how do we thing. roll this into a discussion of the mediator? So <laughs> speaking of types and shadows and foreshadowing. Well, we've been on this kick almost recently, it seems like, and we never, we didn't plan this. So we're talking basically about the nature of Christ, yeah. who he is and how that applies both theologically and practically. And of course, those things do marry together. And we, I want to say at the top of this episode, which is really not the top anymore. I don't know. We're like in the middle because we love Star Wars so much. Yeah, we're, we're past 50% for sure. Oh yeah, well into that. But that being the case, this is really, as many of the most recent episodes have been, inspired by something that one of our listeners has written to us. And I think this is as good a question as any when it comes to the nature of Christ and the Reformed tradition in particular. And so the question really is this. Uh, there, one of our listeners writes that as he's been... Re- understanding and processing and studying the Reformed tradition, he believes, and by the way, before I get into the question, this is going to be the episode of isms. So we're going to drop a lot of isms, but our hope is that we'll be able to explain them, but I have to drop some of them right at the beginning here to express the question. So the question is, as this person has been studying the Reformed faith, the Reformed theological tradition, the question is, do we tend to land towards something called Eutychianism? And does this give rise to this charismatic idea that we can do all the same things that Christ did? And the question was really, do we agree with that statement? Would we say that all Christ did was as a man in the power of the spirit or did Jesus access the divine nature? And if he did everything in the power of the spirit, what's to stop the charismatics from using this in their false hermeneutics. So that's that's kind of like the promised land of where we're going, and there's a lot to unpack there. And maybe somebody is listening to this and saying, like, most of what you just said sounds like completely foreign to me. And so I want to I want to set the stage before, like, giving you kind of a, some space to like kind of talk about what you think about this generally and where we should begin by saying, the early church just got like straight bombarded by heresies of the nature of Christ, right? I mean, like they really had to contend with what is going on here. And so I want to, just by way of definition, drop at least five of those that they had to deal with. And these are like Christological heresies, understanding who is Christ and what is his nature. So we've talked about this, I think, in some of our other podcasts, and you should go back and listen to those. But one of those was Arianism, which held that Jesus was a created being, the son of God, but not eternal. Then we have Ebenitarianism, which was this emphasized the idea that humanity of Jesus at the expense of his, de- his deity. Then I know we've talked about Apollinarianism, which emphasized the deity of Christ at the expense of his humanity. And then there's Nestorianism, which split Christ into two distinct persons, one human and one divine. And then we get to what we're talking about today, Eutychianism, which confused the two natures of Christ into one mixed nature of divine and human. All that to say, there's all this stuff happening. So you're going to hear a lot of these isms because they represent different perspectives on what people believed was the nature of Christ. And really, the Council of Chalcedon in 451, we consider that traditionally to be the place where it was recognized as the last word for the sake of established confessional dogma for Orthodox uh, Christology. But the council may have stated like ontologically what this union was, but the church is still left with the difficulty of expressing 
how these two natures actually function practically in one person. And that's where all this stuff comes about. And that's where all this stuff continues to kind of be stirred up. There's nothing new here. We're just recycling these old heresies. So let's talk a little bit about what Eutychianism is. Maybe some other, there's other words that we could use to describe it. And so we can get a, a firm basis for like answering the question. So like somebody talks to you, you're at work, right? You're in the elevator and you're going from floor one to floor two. And somebody says to you, before I get off this elevator at floor two, <laughs> you have to tell me what Eutychianism is. What is like your pitch there? What, what are you using to describe that in kind of a succinct way? Well, I have to confess something first. So before we started this episode, we very rarely do a pre-episode conference. Yes. But before we started this episode, Jesse said to me, I'm going to blow a bunch of these isms. <laughs> and he went through a few of them. And because of how much crap I got last week about the way I say tour, <laughs> I let Jesse continue to say Eutychianism when I knew full well it's actually pronounced Eutychianism. So... I I've confess heard it both my ways, sin. Though. I've heard it both yeah. ways. Yeah, so I'm playing a little bit here. I'm poking a little bit funny, Jesse. That's fine. You will I'll hear these. It. You'll hear these words pronounced different ways. So don't don't worry so much about that. Eutychianism, Eutychianism. Um, basically, the idea behind Eutychianism, it, we need to tell a little bit of a story, right? So First Council of Nicaea, they figured out or they they articulated that Jesus is truly God. Like Jesus is God in the same way that the father is God and the spirit is God. Right. And then we, we get to the second, the first council of Constantinople about 50 years later or so. And they articulate the same thing, but then they also articulate without clarifying the how that Jesus is also fully man. So up until this point, we're now at the, the actual Nicene creed, which was finalized in 381. We've got that Jesus is fully God. Jesus is fully man. Right. Then there was a relatively peaceful period in the church until they started to have to figure out, all right, what does that mean? Like, how do we figure that out? And so Nestorianism, which we, we talked about, is is this overly distinct, this, this bifurcation of the person of Christ. So Nestorius probably didn't actually believe that there was two persons, but he fell into the error of treating natures as though they were personal agents or as though they were, right. were distinct agents apart from the person that they were hypostatized in, that they were concrete or that they subsisted in. And so Nestorius's theology tended to think of Christ as kind of two, two distinct realities fused together, two, two actual concrete realities fused together rather than a concrete divine eternal reality that then had a secondary human reality attached to it or assumed into it. So, so people will buckle at this, but we don't say that Jesus is a human person. We right. say that Jesus is a divine person who took into himself a human nature. Like that seems like, like minuscule differences, but it makes all the difference in the world. And so the, the main opponent, the person uh, opposing Nestorius was named Cyril of Alexandria. And he had some language, which sounds almost like he's saying that Jesus is a single nature, that, that Jesus is somehow this fusion of two things that comes into this new, this new thing. And you always have to remember that Cyril is, is articulating his theology in response to Nestorius. So he maybe goes a little bit too far in this fusion language or this union language. What he's saying is that Christ is one personalized nature, basically saying he's one person who has these, these, uh, all of the attributes of these two different natures, but they become real and concrete in a single person. So he used the language of 
personal nature. And, and the way that you'd say that in Greek is phusis, P-H-Y-S-I-S. And that, that's where we get, we get the term physical or, or, you know, um, physiology is it's talking right. about the, the person, like the, the makeup of a person is physiology. Like you're talking about the different, the different elements of a person, the way that those elements interact with each other is physiology. So, so Cyril articulated that Christ was a single physis or phusis. And so some of this linguistic stuff was worked out in the intervening years, but about, you know, 20 years later after that, this monk named Eutyches comes along and he actually thought that he was articulating Cyril's doctrine. And so what he said is that Christ is a divine person and he takes on a human nature and he adds it to his divine nature. But because the, the divine nature is infinite the human nature is finite. It's like putting a drop of vinegar in the ocean. Right. Technically speaking, the vinegar is still there. If you were to measure the entire ocean and had a, a sensitive enough resolution, you could detect that difference. But in reality, the human nature doesn't actually change anything about the divine nature, which is true. But what it does do is it creates this reality, and this is what Eutychus got wrong, is it creates this reality where Christ now has these two distinct ways of existing. He exists as the divine son of God, the way that he always has. And now he has this sort of secondary existence that is truly human. So everything that there is to be human, limitations, uh, not being omniscient, feeling pain, having hunger, being born of a woman, all of these things that are, are necessary for human existence. Christ is those things, not just in show, but in actuality. Right. And so when we're talking about Eutychianism, what we're talking about is a theology that actually denies in a real sense that Christ became human because although he has all of those human attributes, those attributes are overshadowed by the divine nature. So it's really a form of docetism where Christ becomes human, but not really. He only, he only seems human. He only appears human because he chooses to, but he doesn't actually have all of the limitations of the human nature. He, he only appears to. And so I have to admit, it's a little puzzling. I've never actually heard, uh, I, I should take that back. There's one place that I've heard the reformed be accused of Eutychianism. And it comes from a strange source, right? It's actually R.C. Sproul who, who right. accused yep. Bob Godfrey of being Eutychian. And here's why right. is uh, this, the context of this is, and we've referenced this before is a Ligonier video where someone asks about the hymn that says um, that uses the phrase God died. And R.C. Sproul wanted to deny that phrase because the divine nature can't be destroyed. So it's nonsense to say that, that God died. Right. And so he says, instead, the human nature died, but the divine nature did not. Now, when you push him and you ask him to clarify, he articulates this in a way that's completely compatible with, and he actually uses the language of the, the Chalcedonian definition. But the way he articulated it there, that the human nature of Christ dies, but the divine nature doesn't, that's actually a very Nestorian way to talk. Because what it's done is it's bifurcated the person of Christ in a way where the person is not the subject of these nouns or the, the object of these noun verbs, but the natures are. And so these natures take on this sort of personalized element where the, the human nature of Christ is dying. So it's, it's far more common uh, for the reformed. And this goes all the way back to uh, all the way back to the reformation. It's far more common for the reformed to be accused of Nestorianism right. because we try to preserve this, I think, appropriate distinction between the human nature and the divine nature. 
without actually separating them. Right. And some people go too far, right? It's certainly possible for us to go too far. There's times that I've looked back at my own writing, uh, whether it's in a formal sense, a paper I've written or a blog post or something like that, or just a conversation I've had where I look at it and I go, Ooh, yeah, I, I probably went a little too far in that. Um, the same thing happens with me in the Trinity, my views on the Trinity have changed. And sometimes look at, it, I was like, Ooh, yeah, that's pretty close to EFS. I never really, I never would have said that if I knew the errors with that. Right. So, so we have to understand these different views and what they represent before we really can even answer this question. So Eutychianism is the idea that the, the two natures of Christ actually blend together and become this third nature that is basically the same as the divine nature with just this, this infinitesimally small addition of the human nature. And then Nestorianism is the view that, that there's this utter distinction between the human and divine nature such that the human nature can act independently of the divine nature. Whether we articulate that, and Nestorius didn't, but his followers certainly did, but whether we articulate that as actually two distinct persons, which is kind of like classical Nestorianism, or whether we articulate that in a way where we just believe that the human nature can somehow do something or be something separate from what the person is, that's an historianism. We talked about that in our episode on impeccability. In order to affirm that Christ is peccable or could sin, you have to treat the human nature like it's a willing agent. Well, right. a willing agent is just another word for a person. So we have we have to be cautious in how we do that. Right. All right. So that <laughs> that was all really good. That was one long elevator ride, but Sorry. nonetheless. Yeah, you're not getting off the elevator when you ask me about Christology. <laughs> no, nobody's getting off the elevator with you. I push if they that, ask that stop question. button. The dude's hitting the alarm, <laughs> trying to get out. They're called. They're sending the search party. There's yeah. no stopping me at that yeah, point. They've already called the fire department on you. But no, all that's good. And I, I think probably, perhaps like the centerpiece of that that's most helpful if if somebody hasn't heard this before is the metaphor which you cited. Which um, I don't know if, if that's something that Eutychus taught himself or that we've just superimposed that metaphor. But this idea of combining a drop of vinegar in water, the result is a mixture that's not pure water. It's, it's not pure vinegar. So right. instead there is this, in a sense, third substance. It's a mixture of the two. And so that is what he's talking about. There is a dominant nature to that relative solution, but at the same time, it's something that is different than the combination of, of either one of the elements. And so I, I think that's, what's helpful. And that's where I think the question is really so unique is, is there a way, is that what the reform tends toward? And I, I agree with you. I would say no. And like, so if you think of this as like a spectrum and just drop on one end of the other in the most extreme positions, the idea of, um, and I'm going to, so I just looked this up and interestingly enough, this is so weird. You can find both the pronunciations. So I'm just going to like be your yang to your yang <laughs> and just go with Eutychianism still. I'm going to, I'm going to go with that. I'm committed. I'm all the way in. So <laughs> At one end, if you have Eutychianism, at the other end, you have Nestorianism. I would say that even in like my personal life, I do tend to like shade or weight or tilt toward the Nestorian purview because I want to so make sure the distinction of the natures is prominent in the expression. And and this even ties into your your denial of like cognitive bias, like being careful about this, but trying to understand that we need to make sure or reflect that there is, and I would say it this way, like truly God, truly man represented in Jesus Christ. And so getting to like the latter part though of the question. Well, does this give liberty to kind of the charismatic movement than to, than to say, well, if what we have here is a man who is operating under the fullness of the Spirit, and then we also have the Spirit, so can't we do everything that Jesus did? Well, of course, it's kind of like a false setup for that question, because like any heresy can beget more heresy. So like, in other words, to say like, 
can they take what is wrong and make it wrong? Well, it's already wrong to begin with. So yes, they're going to be empowered by something that's off the mark. If the end point is off the mark, then of course they can take a, the progenitor of that or the beginning of that, the genesis of that, which is off the mark. And it's, it's still only going to make the thing more off the mark. But I do like in the in middle of that, this question of, well, then how do we understand what Jesus did, his practical reality and his application in the context of who we are now as children of God with the spirit? So I, I know that you have some stuff in the confessions. I want to drop one to, to begin that conversation. This is from the LBC. This is chapter eight, section three, because you know I had to go there because I know you're going to do the Westminster. So this is uh, reads the Lord Jesus in his human nature, thus united to the divine in the person of the Son was sanctified and anointed with the Holy Spirit above measure, having in him all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge in whom it pleased the Father that all fullness should dwell to the end that being holy, harmless, undefiled, and full of grace and truth, he might be thoroughly furnished to execute the office of mediator and surety, which office he took upon himself, but was thereunto called by his Father who also put all power and judgment into his hand and gave him commandment to execute the same. So to yeah. me, what that's summarizing is a sense of there is a unique calling and unique anointing that's on Jesus Christ that we cannot take for ourselves, even though we're talking about the same spirit. So I'll, I'll stop talking there and give you kind of like chance to kind of feed into that and provide insight into that as well. Yeah. So, you know, I want to make sure that we answer this question real clearly and, and concisely. So the fact of the matter is, that most Pentecostals, um, or I would even say we could even go in another step further than that. We're really talking about third wave Pentecostals, right? Yes. We're not talking about classical right. assemblies of God Pentecostals. We're talking about the Todd Whites and the the Benny Hins and the you know the um, the Kenneth Copelands of the world, right? They are not actually articulating an Orthodox Christology to start with. So, so they really are articulating in most cases, a full on Nestorianism right. where Christ, Christ is this human guy who somehow, somehow comes into possession of the divine nature, right? They're, they're not articulating, they're going in reverse, right? The, the real error of Nestorianism was not the idea that there were these two persons that were stuck together. A real good book on this. It's super technical. So proceed at your own or your own caution is called grace and Christology in the early churches by my patristics professor, Donald Fairburn. And the real error of Nestorianism was not this idea that there was two persons that somehow got fused together. The real error of this was, was in, in where the incarnation starts. Where does our reasoning about the incarnation start for Nestorius? The reasoning started with the human Jesus and, so, and then, then reasoned out to figure out how, how that Jesus came into possession of the divine nature. Right. Right. So he didn't deny that Jesus had the divine nature, that Jesus was fully God. He didn't deny that he was fully man, but he started his reasoning with that human nature. So the, the miracle of the incarnation in the Nestorian view is how man became God. Right. That's Nestorianism. That's the era of Nestorianism is a man becoming God. The Orthodox position is the miracle of the incarnation is not about how a man became God, but about how God became a man. Right. And so teachers like Todd White, and I don't think they're doing it consciously. I don't think they know enough about theology to be doing this consciously. But the way that they do it, if you listen closely, is they're so focused on how how they start with us, how we can become God, how we can get power, how we can can be blessed by God, that when they then apply that to the, the incarnation, 
what they're doing is they're saying that this man, Jesus, was somehow specially favored by God and somehow came into the possession of the divine nature. And so since that man came into the possession of the divine nature, right. we also can come into right. the possession of the exactly. divine nature. They would never use that language, right? They, they couch it in other ways. And what they're talking about, and this is why they get, they tend to get really, really focused on the baptism of Christ, because they talk about how the Holy Spirit coming onto Christ is what made him the divine son of God. That is, to say, another one of these isms, that's the Ebionite heresy, right? That's right. adoptionism, is Christ becoming God, not God becoming man, Christ becoming God. And so the, the foundation and the underlying theology, right? We've talked about how systematic theology is important because you have to understand how things build on each other. Their foundational layer is that the, the, the incarnation is man becoming God. And so we too can become that. We too can do all the miracles that Christ did. We too can come into the favor of the Lord. We too can have all the blessings, but right. All of these things, that's the totally different starting point from where the reformed, the reformed uh, tradition comes from. So, you know, when you're in your, um, your reading of the LBCF, which is identical verbatim to the Westminster confession, right? Each chapter of the confession is an argument, right? It's points that form a cohesive argument. Right. So you have to start with the first the first uh, section of that in chapter eight, it pleased God and his eternal purpose to choose and ordain the Lord Jesus Christ, his only begotten son, right? So we're talking about eternity past. We're talking about the son already existing as the divine son of God. And then it says in, in section two, the son of God, the second person of the Trinity being very an eternal God, right? It's reemphasizing that point of one substance equal with the father did when the fullness of time came take upon him man's nature. So we're starting from a different spot. We're not talking about the Nestorian perspective that the incarnation was man becoming God or man being adopted by God. We're talking about God becoming man. So that, that answers the question in sort of a direct way is that's the difference, right? That's right. how we, that's how we can still say, as I do most of the time, that Christ, what we see of Christ in the new Testament is predominantly a man operating under the power and influence of the Holy spirit, right? That, that's what I think is happening. Right. It says it says basically as much in Acts, right? It says that that this man Jesus Christ, who God attested to you through many miracles that He did through Him, right? It doesn't it doesn't say we know that Jesus was God. We know that He was He was who He said He was because He did a bunch of miracles. It says God attested Him to you in front of your eyes by performing miracles through Him. Well, how were many of the prophets attested by God by miracles? Right. right. How was Moses attested by God? How did how did Moses prove to the people of Israel that he was sent by God by doing miracles? So so we have to remember that just because we may end up at sort of a similar endpoint, we have to look at how we got there before we can say these two things are the same. The fact that the reform tradition still says that predominantly what we see in the son of God in the pages of the New Testament is a man operating by the, the ceaseless, abounding, unmeasurable infilling of right. the Holy Spirit doesn't mean that we're saying the same thing as the Pentecostals or the third wave people who say the same thing because we got there from a totally different starting point. Yes. Yeah, that's a good point. It's it's kind of confusing the appearance of something for understanding its genesis from where it came. Yep. Because, and the reason why we're saying this, the reason why I think the Reformed tradition comes from that standpoint is nowhere in the New Testament do the writers ever attribute Jesus' power, works, miracles, or his words to his own inherent ability or divine attributes. Right. In fact, even Jesus himself never attributed his works, words, or power to himself either. So the Gospels and Acts presented Jesus, who was dependent on and in total submission to God the Father by the Holy Spirit. 
And that was necessary, if you think about it, a necessary model for Jesus to portray because he could not and did not exercise divine attributes in order to declare or do anything that was supernatural. And that's because human beings cannot do that either. So his words and his deeds came out of this dependent relationship with the Father, and his power came out of his anointing by the Holy Spirit. They did not occur because he was God. That is tricky. And even yes. like using those words requires us to think through them a little bit. But that's why we've said over and over again that Jesus is not a superhero. And and that's important because if we're really going to understand the natures, then we need to understand that that's the place exactly, as you said, from where we start. So really what's interesting about that, again, I love about this question is it's trying to get a sense for like, well, how do I process this? How do people understand this? And I think what you need to do is to ask them, to force them to back up. And right. to explain where they're starting from. And when you do that, you're going to automatically reveal really what people believe and how they understand the scriptures. Yeah. But I would say, even with all that said, I would say, and this is where I'm curious for perspective is kind of wind down, is that most of the time, as you kind of humorously alluded to elsewhere in the email, reform people get accused of Nestorianism. And that Eutychianism, that's, that's what's interesting to me is like most of the time it's like we make such a big deal about these, the two natures, the truly man, truly God, that it seems like we're being Nestorian when really, and maybe even practically sometimes I've been that way, but it's, it's not like if you were to pin me down, I'm going to recognize the error of that heresy. But what I'm trying to emphasize is just maybe I'm trying to push against this idea that it's this, everything's being conflated in the person of Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. So, so there's another important element to this too, that we have to understand, right? So if you, right, we're, we're working in chapter eight of the, the Westminster and London Baptist confession, and there's no significant differences between the two, as far as I know. And so as you work through the, you work through that chapter, right, you get down to, um, section seven and it says Christ in the work of mediation acts according to both natures. Right. By each nature doing that which is proper to itself. Now, I, I would probably rephrase that if I could. I would rephrase that by saying each nature operating in a way appropriate to itself or something along those lines. Because the way that, and, and again, right, everybody is writing things in response to things that are going on in their world, yes. right? So they were not responding to the same Christological issues that we are, right? right? When I talk about how natures don't do things in reference to someone who refuses to say that, that Mary is the mother of God and is instead the mother of the human nature, that sentence doesn't even make sense, right? Because natures don't have mothers, persons have mothers. Well, people will always point me back and go, well, it says the natures do things. Well, they're not responding to the same thing. So if I had to rephrase this, I would say Christ in the work of mediation and look, look at this. Christ acts according, according to both natures, right? right? So they're already saying it's the person of Christ, the single person of Christ who acts according to both natures by each nature operating in a way appropriate to itself, right? And then it goes on yet by the reason of the unity of the person, right? The person that which is proper to one nature is sometimes in scripture attributed to the person denominated by the other. So that's where we get passages like in, in uh, Acts where it talks about how uh, the the son or God bought the church with his own blood. Right. I actually, I think that's in Corinthians or in Acts, there's a sermon where Paul says that the author of life was murdered. Right. So we have all these different things um, or one that I hadn't even run into before. But in John three, six, uh, John first, John three, 16, hereby we perceive the love of God because he laid down his life for us. Right. Right. So, right. so God laid down his life. Well, it's only appropriate to say that the son laid down his life according to his human nature. Right. But we can still talk about that single person using the title God. And in this case, because it makes a point, 
Even God exactly. laid down his life for us. Exactly. It wasn't just some man. It was God who laid down his life for us. So we have to we have to understand that that feature is there. But there's something else I wanted to, to look at here. It doesn't say that Christ operated in one nature or the other. It says that Christ acted according to both natures. So the answer to the question, if we want to get real nerdy and technical, which you know we do, the answer to the question, did Christ do his miracles as a man or as God? The answer is yes. Yes. Right. right? Because <laughs> right. Christ as God, right? All three persons of the Trinity act inseparably ad extra, meaning that anything they do that is oriented towards creation, they all do equally. They all participate equally. They may each play their own specific role, but there's no person of the Trinity that's absent from any work towards creation, any work right. external to the Trinity. So when Christ raises the dead man, when Christ raises Lazarus from the grave, although that's not a great example because he asks the Father to do it, right. but when Christ walks on water, when Christ forgives sin, when Christ does any of the things that the scripture attributes to him, that typically we look at and go, well, that proves he's God. He is doing that according to human nature as a human prophet, calling on the power of the spirit, empowered by the father to do the will of the father. He is also, according to his divine nature, empowering his human nature to accomplish that miracle the same way that the father, the son and the spirit empowered Elijah to call down fire from heaven right. or empowered Moses to split the Red Sea or empowered Elisha to raise someone from the dead or empowered the disciple Peter to walk on water or the disciple Paul to raise someone from the dead, right? So we have this history in the scriptures of God through his spirit empowering particularly his prophets, right? Apostles and prophets are the ones who do miracles, empowering them to do miraculous deeds to attest the message that they are bringing. That's what happened with Christ, right? right? However, at the same time, God is the one empowering those miracles, the father, the son, and the spirit. So the son is in a unique position as the, as not only the one who is hypostatically united, right? He's a hypostasis of both divine and the human natures, but also who has the spirit above measure beyond measure. Right. So he's unique in that sense. Yes. But in another sense, he's operating according to his human nature, the same way that Paul or Peter or Moses or you and I do. So I'm, I'm a cessationist, you're a cessationist, right. but I also know and have experienced times where people have prayed for healing and apparently healing happens. So I'm not, I'm not one that's going to say God can't do miracles anymore, but right. when that happens, if that happens, it's not that person doing something, it's God doing something through them. Christ right. is different, but also the same. <laughs> yeah, I understand what you're saying. I think that's fair. I mean, good because I don't understand what I'm saying. Well, no, but, but I mean, like, I get your point that like there there is a uniqueness, but there's also like a full representation of the commonality of humanity in what Christ is doing. And and yeah, I think like where the direction of this question is coming is, and this is not necessarily a perspective of the person who's writing, but he's saying that he's come from this type of tradition. And the tradition, the the tradition rather, tends to just appropriate this idea that well, if Christ did it, we can do it because we're just right. talking about same language. Like he talks about being in the spirit. We are in the spirit. And that's not only just like a superficial understanding of the scriptures, but it is a failure to recognize again, where you start and why, where you start determines really, it's not even determines where you end because we're, we're coming on the face. We're using like a lot of the same language. It's the, the fact of like, how did you get there? What were the building blocks that you put in place right. that you could stand on to get you to that point? And how do those building blocks then shape how you understand what the power of the spirit is in your life. Like we just can't equate or conflate the two and say like, well, because Jesus had the spirit and I have the spirit, then we can do exactly the same things. So yeah. certainly people will take liberty with that and they will abuse it. 
like you can draw a straight line through that if in fact you want to, but yep. it doesn't mean that you should. And it certainly doesn't mean it's accurate. So will people take that and use that as an argument? Absolutely. Should you try to punch them in the neck and show them in the scriptures where that is false? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> I, I wasn't sure where you were going. Cause as I started that, like you kind of gave me that like head nod, like, where's this going to end up? <laughs> Go straight up Athanasius style or St. Nicholas style and punch him right in the face. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, but... one, one other example I want to talk about, because, you know, I was thinking about this today and this was actually before you had told me, maybe it was yesterday, but this was before you had told me what the subject for today was. Okay. And I was thinking about this very question about how do we, this just shows you a little bit of how my brain works. I was puzzling over this idea that I have, this theology that I hold that by and large, what we see in the New Testament is the son acting as a man, according to his human nature, empowered by the Holy Spirit. Right. I believe that to be true. But in light of the discussion with confirmation bias, yeah. I was wrestling through the scriptures, trying to find counterexamples that I can't account for. Right. Okay. I was applying some sort of weird version of the scientific method. I was trying to find an example that doesn't fit my model so that I could make the model more, you know, make right. the model more faithful I, to the Bible. I'm down with that. And so I came across the instance where Christ uh, is, um, you know, they, they lower the man through the roof, the paralyzed man through the roof. And he says, he says that you may know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins, right? Take up your mat and, and walk. And the, the, the payout of that story or that of that account is that Christ is demonstrating his uniqueness, his unique ability uh, to forgive sin by healing this man. Right. 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 So he's saying like forgiving sin or restoring walking to this man, it's, it's just as easy for me. And, and so you have to ask the question, well, why, why is it just as easy for him? And the answer that people typically give is, well, because he's God, God can forgive sins whenever he wants, but can he, right? right? So a, as right. reformed Christians, I get you. by and large, we would say, no, no, God, God can't just forgive sin. Like that's a, that's a central feature of our theology is that God can't just overlook sin. He can't just right. forgive sin. So if, if all Christ is doing there is saying, I have the authority not to hold his sin against him. So I'm not going to, there has to be something in that passage that is talking about the uniqueness of the mediator, the uniqueness of the son of man as not only God, but also the human agent who brings about the forgiveness of sin, right? Because God, the father the son apart from the incarnation and death and resurrection and the Holy spirit cannot simply say your sins are forgiven. They can't do it. It's a, it's an affront to what it means to be God's. They can't do it. So we have to look at that passage. We have to think carefully and say, well, what's going on here? What I think is going on. And this is a little off the cuff. What I think is going on is Christ is not only proving that he's God. He's proving that he is the God man. Yes. He's proving that he is the only, to, to use the, the language of, of 1 Timothy, he's the only mediator between God and man. He's the only one who can forgive sins. And because he's the only one who can forgive sins, he has the authority not only to restore spiritual health to a person because of what he would accomplish on the cross, but he also has the authority to restore physical health to a person. And this is something that the, the Pentecostals bring up that is wrong. He doesn't promise to do that this side of the resurrection, but in order to foreshadow what he will do in the resurrection, the general resurrection of the dead, there are these little glimpses that Christ throws into, into his ministry to show that not only is he restoring a spiritual people, but he's bringing right. about the restoration of their, their very bodies, right? He's healing the sick. He's raising the dead. He's healing the lame. 
And so he is the one that has the authority to do that because he is not just God, not just man, but he is the, the God-man mediator. And I, I, I was reading this in Witsius the other day and, and I, I underlined it. And I, other than the fact that it's just a great turn of phrase, I wasn't sure why it, it caught out to me. But he says here, uh, this is in book two, chapter four. He says, but what creature can possibly bestow God upon any? And then it says here, and this is just beautiful. It says, none but God can give God. He gives himself. Hence, these two are joined, the true God and eternal life. First John 5.20. So the point of that is God himself has to be the one to give himself. No one else can do it. No other right. creature can do it. But no no one but a creature could give that to us. So so those accounts walking on water, right? It, it's almost as though the God ordained, I shouldn't say almost as though, God ordains Peter walk on water at the same time, almost to show you that this is not as simple as saying, well, only God can walk on water, right? Because right. obviously not only God can walk on water. Peter walks on water, right? In that same pericope. So we have to look at these carefully. We can't take... We usually can't take just the easy on the surface answer because it's not usually easy and on the surface. Right. That's fair. I think that I think that's probably a good place to, st to stop in the sense that like there's something here that that draws us into this like symbiotic sense that we have a special anointing of Jesus and God giving himself is what uh, enables and empowers uh, us as Christians to do the things which he has called us to do. And yet at the same time, that anointing of Jesus was so specific and so unique. There's a messianic mission there, a power and authority that of course separates him and sets him apart from everybody else in all of history. And so there's also like a coterminous desire to like respect that. And yet to understand that we receive some of that, but not the whole thing. And it, it's beautiful actually. Like we could talk all day about this, I think. And we would, yeah. we would still get to the point where there'd be so much left to unpack. So I appreciate the question. I'm so glad that people are so thoughtful and they're questioning of the scriptures and trying to understand what it means and then willing to kind of allow us to come in and speak some into that by way of sending those questions to us. So keep on doing that. So much of what shapes, I think the episodes we put together is what we know people want to hear talked about. And that's always a blessing for us to just come in and be a part of that conversation. Yeah. You know, one of the things I love about these episodes that we're doing um, that are responsive to questions or emails that we get is, you know, you, you and I have been honest about the fact like this isn't this isn't a ministry in a formal sense. Like we, we right. understand the difference between church ministry and everything else. But this is Jesse and I view this show as a way that we can support the church by providing good theological content from a, a reform perspective that edifies people. And this is the important part that responds to the needs that people let us know are out there. Right. So, so this episode is timely. Like it's no, I don't know what we're responding to in, in the world and in the culture necessarily that is leading us to all these different Christological questions. But there are obviously a lot of questions about Christology because that's what these topics are driving us towards. So keep the questions coming. Keep, keep giving us things. You know, sometimes it probably feels like we don't read them. We read them. We plan we episodes around them. You know, we aren't doing the kind of traditional question cast as much anymore because we're getting these topics that really deserve more than just, you know, a, a 15 or 20 minute snippet. So keep them coming. And, you know, th there's this... There's this other thing that I wanted to just bring up before we, we close out. There's this new app that I've been using. Um, it's called the Relight app. And it's it's actually really, it's a really cool story. So David McCookie, McCookie, did I get that right? I, of course, I'm going to totally embarrass myself. McCookie, <laughs> McCookie. I'm just going to say David M because I don't actually know how to pronounce his last name. 
Uh, he is one of the hosts of the latest form of flogging, yes. uh, which is a podcast that they, they're not really a theology podcast, but they, there's a lot of theological discussion that's involved because of just who the hosts are. And, you know, he he and his wife, Sarah, have put together or they're beginning to put together this web app called the Relight app. And, you know, it's it's really unique, I think, because it's one of the few um, it's one of the few apps out there that is really, truly a reformed resource. Right. So you can go to Bible Gateway uh, or CCEL and you can type in a passage and you get all sorts of results. And that's great. But you're going to get results mixed in there. Anything from John Wesley, who we would say more or less in most cases is a, you know, is a uh, reliable commentator. But you're also going to find liberal resources. You're going to find Roman Catholic resources. Like it's it's not specific. But Relight is actually a free reformed theology and Bible study web app that is built around what the reformed tradition has recognized and tested as reliable. So it uses the King James version of the Bible, which is not a perfect translation, but you can't deny how much of an influence the King James translation has had in reformed theology, right? It's, it's some of our theology, although I think it's true regardless of which, which uh, version of the Bible you're using, some of our theology has developed out of specific translation choices that the King James translators made. So having that King James Bible there, even if you think it's not the greatest translation, which I don't, I prefer the ESV, but even if you don't think it's the greatest translation, having it there so you have that context to not only understand what the scripture is saying or what the confession is saying, but how those two things came to be is really important. Just like we talked about the way you get to an answer is sometimes more important than the answer itself. Cause right. sometimes two people get to the same answer, you know, outwardly, but one's right and one's wrong because of the method getting there. Um, you know, it has the confessions, the Westminster confession linked. It's got Geneva study Bible notes. Um, it's got all sorts of really great resources and it works really slick. It's really, really, uh, it's, it's sort of a different way to do a Bible app. So it's hard to explain. It's hard to describe. Go to relightapp.com and check it out uh, or relight.app, excuse me, R-E-L-I-G-H-T dot app. Just look at it. And you know what? I would be willing to bet that if you give it a chance, it'll probably be like replace your go-to web Bible from something yes. like Bible Gateway or something like that. It really yes, is a slick app. They've done a I great agree. job. Super handsome. So yeah. I, I can only just cooperate with that and say, go check it out relight.app that's great by itself we should have just both affirm that at the top yeah exactly and you know he's they're looking at adding um even more resources so right now you have the king james bible calvin's commentaries geneva bible study notes uh the westminster uh confessions and catechisms and then they're looking at adding the 1689 so they're equal opportunity they're going to add keach's catechism which is uh which is benjamin keach was a baptist uh in the 16th in the 17th century who basically modified and adapted the westminster confession in order to make it serviceable to a, a baptist perspective um, they're going to add the abstract of principles, which is really foundational to Southern Baptist theology. Um, I would assume there's going to be other things added. It really is a growing app. It's really developing. It's really, really slick. So go check it out. Um, there's ways that you can, you know, support him, share it with your friends. Um, check it out. Like he's a friend of the show. He's a good guy. Um, you know, him and his wife are working on this together, which is, I, I gotta be honest. I've watched some of the YouTube, YouTube uh, videos great. of them talking about it. And they're just like the cutest couple. Yeah, like you just want to go, Oh, like they're so adorable together and they're working really hard on this app. It's great. So it's actually, a labor of love. Yeah. And what I appreciate about them is, uh, they have a good, like self-deprecating humor about themselves. Yeah. Like they, they don't take themselves too seriously but they take their work very seriously. They In do. fact, if you go on their website under their Instagram link, they have this, this is what they say. Did you know that millennials are 80% more likely to check their Instagram inbox than their email inbox? 
we made that up. <laughs> so yeah. it's it's in the site, like there's all this wonderful information, but there's just this like kind of wonderful sense of like good natured humor and love for God and love for each other. So I'm with you. I cannot, so, since you recommended this to me, I've been using it so much. I, I challenge anybody go out and try it. I think if you try it, you're going to love it. So I, yeah. there's not many things I can say that are like that, especially not episodes one, two and three of star Wars. Yeah, don't don't I mean you have to see them. But this is this is like this is top shelf. Like David, if you're yes. listening, which I think you probably are, you did an awesome job on this. Please For extend sure. your congratulations. I can't wait to see how it grows. You know, and I know they're planning I, right now there isn't a dedicated like Android app. You can access it through your web browser on your Android. I know they're planning on developing it more. And and one of the ways that I think we can encourage them is to use it, but then also share it. Like share yes. it on Facebook. If you if you know David, if you have access to him online, reach out to him, tell him you're appreciative, give him feedback. Right. He's a really humble guy. I'm sure that if something isn't the way that you think it should be, he'd be willing to take that feedback into account. But it, it's really slick. So relight.app, it's it's awesome. Check it out. So this is episode 185, and I feel like I'm on solid ground by saying it's possible this is the longest one we've ever recorded. <laughs> I think so. I think it's probably pretty close. There was there was the lost episode that was like two hours long. Oh yeah, that's that right. Disappeared. But that yeah, that was just scattered to the wind. That was yeah, the chaff. It, yeah, blown it just away. Disappeared. It's too bad. Yeah, the, nobody will ever know about that. It's it's like the the hidden gem that you yeah. know what we talked about that was so prolific. It was the it definitive is. episode of something, and the world yeah. will never know. Well, we proved we proved seven day creation beyond any sort of shadow of a doubt. <laughs> That's right. We also we also resolved the complementarian issue. Yes. Um, and you know also um, you know found the secret to cold fusion. So yes, it's too bad that that it's too bad that your microphone crapped out because yeah, we probably really could have solved all the world's problems. We didn't even know it, but we actually had the cure for coronavirus too. So. Yeah, I mean, and now bad. that you've just reprised all that, like the weight now that I feel on my shoulders for the fact that it was my equipment that failed is, is so true. great. Yep, you should be ashamed of yourself. Yeah, I am. Well, so I'm going to go <laughs> wallow in that shame and that pity. So until next time, honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. <laughs> <laughs>